This morning, we're going to be starting a new series that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks. We're going to be looking at David. Now, maybe you're already familiar with David, maybe you're not, but one of the things that's kind of interesting, if you remember in the fall when we did our study of the book of Ruth, one of the things that you see at the very end of the book of Ruth, you find this genealogy. And it's a genealogy that initially points to David, and then you realize that that same genealogy is mentioned in the Gospels as ultimately being something that points us to Jesus Christ. And so as a a transition, kind of a logical transition from our study of Ruth, we're going to be studying some of the key events and some of the key principles that I think we can learn by studying the life of David. So we're going to be spending our time in 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel, and also looking at the Psalms and some of the other related passages in the coming weeks, kind of getting a picture of some of the things that the Lord did in David's life and some of the things that we're called to learn from those experiences. And this morning, we're going to look at the portion of Scripture where David's name is first mentioned. So if you would take your your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel 16. We're going to be in 1 Samuel 16, and today we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses of 1 Samuel 16. And the big principle that you're going to notice as we look at this portion of Scripture is the fact that the Lord looks at the heart. That's one of the main things emphasized in this passage. That while most people are spending all their time and all their energy and all their efforts looking at external things and temporary things and worldly things and worldly metrics, the Lord looks at the heart. And he could see the things that quite typically many of us cannot see. So 1 Samuel 16, starting with verse 1, this is what it says. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, 
Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to spend some time together looking at what you've revealed to us in this passage of Scripture. Lord, it's exciting to go back to this early season in David's life, someone who many of us know plenty about and have heard plenty about and have read many of the things that you inspired him to write in the Psalms and have taken great encouragement from the ministry that you gave to him. But it's encouraging to us and interesting to us to be able to go back to this portion of Scripture and to see the work that you did in his life and how that that really was inaugurated here in this passage. Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of your word and as we think about things like this concept of, of, of what it means for you to look at the heart and not uh, fixate on outward appearances and outward uh, symbols and statuses like so many people choose to do, we pray, Lord, that we would understand the consequence of that and that that would be something that, that we learn to value as well. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you'd help us to understand your word together today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So where I grew up, I, I grew up um, mainly, I lived in a few different places, but I mainly lived in a town called Carbondale. It's right up by Scranton, Pennsylvania. And uh, where I grew up, parking was often a problem. Maybe you grew up in a place that was pretty similar to that. You've probably noticed that in many parts of the country where the cities and the towns were developed before the automobile, uh, that it can be very difficult, be very challenging to find a place to park your car because everything was built in such a way that they didn't even take that into account. And so unless you tear buildings down or figure out some sort of solution, there's not always an obvious place to park. And that was very much the case where I lived as a young man. And so when I was 16 and when I bought my first car, uh, it was an Oldsmobile Cutlass Sierra. It was blue. It was the most comfortable yet unreliable car I ever had. I paid $800 for that car, uh, I, but literally it was dri like driving a living room. That's what it was like. It felt like driving a living room. I've never owned a car quite as comfortable. I digress. It was junk, however. Um, but I was 16, bought my first car, and um, I was often forced to figure out creative solutions to try and figure out where to park, especially because I lived on a main road where there was absolutely no street parking. So it was a main road, there was no option there. And so one option that I utilized for a while was to park my car in a neighborhood that was one block away from our home. And so I'd walk up a hill to get to my car and park, you know, I'd park it there and then walk back home. And basically what I had done was I had found a spot on the edge of a street near the backyard of a nearby home. And that seemed to work for a while. And for a while, I thought I had figured out the solution because no one really parked there. I never really had any trouble finding parking there. It seemed kind of like a, a hidden spot in a way. And I used it for a while until one afternoon when I parked the car and a small boy walked up to me. 
And he said this, very poignant words from maybe like a four or five-year-old child. He said, why do you park your car behind our house? We don't like it. That's what he said. Why do you park your car behind our house? We don't like it. And apparently, my decision to park there bothered his family. Now, I didn't, knew that. I didn't know this. Their, their family, um, they never said anything about it. The car wasn't parked illegally. Street parking was allowed wherever you could find it, and that was a spot that I found. So technically, they didn't own the street. They just didn't like that I parked it there. And I didn't want to upset them. I didn't want to cause any conflict. So I told that young boy, I told him, you know what? I'll be happy to move it somewhere else. And so I started the car back up, and I started pulling away, and it was a warm day, my window was down, and I could hear the comments that his family was making from their back porch as I was pulling away. They were amazed that their little son had the courage to ask a teenager to park somewhere else. And so I heard them talk about this, and they were just as amazed that I was willing to listen to his request. And... Um, and admittedly, I remember in the moment feeling like, this is odd, this is weird. I actually felt a little embarrassed as it was taking place, but I've never forgotten it. It's always been something that stood out to me. It's always been a memory that's just kind of burned in my mind. And I mentioned that just to kind of set up what we're about to look at here, because I think it's a good reminder that leaders don't always look like we thought they would look. In that family, who took the lead? It's that four-year-old boy, that five-year-old boy, however old he was. Leaders don't always look how you thought they'd look. They aren't always as old as you might expect them to be, and they don't always come with the titles or the authority that you might expect them to carry. And when you look at the opening verses of 1 Samuel 16, you see a very similar scenario being described for us here. In that portion of God's Word, we're taught that while this world loves to look at outward appearances and worldly credentials and all sorts of things like that when it's selecting its leaders— the Lord goes deeper. He goes much deeper than just surface-level appearances. And He looks at the heart. He knows what's going on in, in our heart. He knows what's going on in our mind. When everyone else lets their eyes fool them into believing something incorrect, the Lord makes it clear that He can see what a person is really made of, and He also knows what motivates us all. He, know, he knows what motivates every decision we ever make. And at the time of the events that are recorded here in this passage, at the time when these things were taking place... It was a pivotal time. It was like a transitional time for the nation of Israel. They were in the midst of growing acclimated to being led in a new way. For roughly 400 years prior to this, they had been led by judges. And if you want to read what that season of time was like in the history of Israel, it, it wasn't always pretty. It was kind of interesting. Uh, but you just read the book of Judges in the Old Testament, and for about 400 years, the people of Israel, that's how they were led. They didn't have a king. They didn't have anything like that. They had, a, they had judges that the Lord would raise up, and uh, these judges would lead the nation for that period of time. But during the reign of Samuel, who was Israel's last judge, and he's also referred to as Israel's first prophet, so last judge and first prophet, they asked to be led by a king so that they could be more like the nations that surrounded them. They looked at how the other nations were being led, and they, they wanted to be led the same way. And it's interesting because Samuel warned them that that, there would, that, that idea, even though it was commonly practiced among the neighboring nations, that it had many negative drawbacks. 
but the people of Israel didn't care. They still wanted it. Now, have you ever experienced a season where someone has told you, like, yeah, that sounds good, but you do know the, the other side of that, right? And how often in life have we made decisions where we're like, yeah, yeah I don't want to hear the bad news. Just tell me the good part. And it's like, well, here's the possible good part, but there, here's the 20 things that could go wrong. Don't want to hear those because I'm an optimist. I think it'll go fine. And so you have Samuel telling them, there's a lot of drawbacks if, if you do this. But they, and they wanted a king, and they wouldn't be persuaded otherwise. And, and this grieved the heart of Samuel, but the Lord communicated to him. He's like, We're, let them have it. We're going to let them have a king. And the Lord permitted Samuel to anoint a king for them, and Israel's first king was a man named Saul. So you see Saul mentioned briefly here in 1 Samuel 16. We're going to see him show up plenty, even as we're studying David's life. But Saul was the kind of guy that if you looked at him, you would look at him and say, this guy looks like a king. Like, this guy actually looks like a king. He was an impressive guy. Scripture tells us he was a head taller than everybody else around him. So he was a big guy. Visibly, he would strike you as, you know, this kind of an impressive-looking person. And it's also kind of interesting because initially, when Saul was told that he was going to be king, he tried to hide. He tried, he tried to, he was kind of timid about this idea. I think in some ways he was even terrified of the thought of becoming king because in many respects as he's looking at the nation, you know, there's no, no precedent that he could look to and say like, well, what, like how does the king do this? Like what does the, the king do? He's scared at the thought. I, I, I don't know every last detail about what his life was like before that. But at first he was terrified. And then after being selected for that privilege and serving in that capacity for some time, he actually started to grow very protective of his power and very protective of his authority. And he even started taking liberties with his role that were in direct opposition to God's will. How many times do we see when someone gets entrusted with power, doesn't that reveal the, the sin nature of someone? I always, I, this is something I, I've often said and I, I, I think, and um, I want you to notice this too in all spheres of life. If you want to know there's a couple things you can do that will help you test a person's character. And, if, and one of the biggies, there's, a, there's some, some like common everyday things. I think you could see a lot about a person's character by how they treat someone who has nothing to offer them in return, right? I think that's one way you can test character. I also think that you could test a person's character by how they treat children and, and like pets, now, we're not going to count snakes because most people are terrified of snakes. But like, I, th I think that like, you could tell something about how someone treats a child. I think you could tell some something about someone's character by maybe how they would treat like, someone's household pets and things like that. But if you, one of the biggest, and it's kind of a risky test, but one of the biggest tests that you could give someone if you really want to see what they're like is entrust either money to them or power to them. And sometimes those go hand in hand. And you'll see that, that most people can't handle either, especially when it comes to power. Most people living on this earth, be grateful that most people on the face of this earth aren't in a position of, you know, we'll say like governmental leadership or whatever it may be, because most people that attain those positions demonstrate they actually can't handle that kind of authority. They actually can't handle that kind of power. It reveals something deficient in their character. And so you see with Saul, he started taking liberties with his role that were in direct opposition to the will of God. 
He goes from seeming a little bit timid about being selected as king to all of a sudden just being so covetous of his own power and authority and so protective of it. And basically in time, he just he grew proud. Scripture even references the, you know, this idea of like him erecting a monument to himself. Like if somebody's erecting a monument to themselves, if someone else does it, okay, that's one thing. But if you're erecting a monument to yourself, doesn't that just scream insecurity? And I got to tell you, insecure leadership, I think insecure leadership is worse than just straight up weak or bad leadership because insecure leaders will take you out. They will take you out. Weak leaders won't know what to do. Insecure leaders will take you out because you're a threat. And that's the kind of leader that Saul was. He grew proud. He erected, you know, you have him erecting a monument to himself. He acted in ways that demonstrated he did not have a heart that was sensitive to the will of God. And it's very sad because the Lord offered him a wonderful opportunity to serve people and glorify the name of God and really be blessed in many ways. And yet Saul just wasn't having it. You know, in the end, he just kind of went his own way. And in time, Scripture reveals to us, we even see this at the start here of 1 Samuel 16, Scripture reveals that God rejected Saul as king. And so he instructs Samuel to anoint someone new to serve in that position. The Scripture tells us in verse 1, I'll just read it for us. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Now, when Samuel received that direction, as is the pattern of his life leading up to this, Samuel was obedient to the Lord's direction. But he was also terrified of Saul finding out that this is what he was about to do. Because Saul was an insecure leader, and he wasn't going to take very well to the thought of someone new being anointed as king. Insecure leaders eliminate threats. And, And by the way, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. I'm sure you have. But most grown men don't take too kindly to hearing that you might be participating in their removal from their job. Right? That doesn't tend to go over super well. That's particularly true when it comes to kings. I actually heard a very similar story. Many of you know that the the highest form, I think we could probably agree with this, that the highest form of um, entertainment is professional wrestling. You know, you have like professional wrestling, then you have football, maybe like other arts and things like that, and then painting and horseshoes. That's the list. It goes like that. I think I have that right, roughly. So I was, uh, <laughs> I was watching something the other day, like all grown-ups do, about the history of professional wrestling. And professional wrestling, and I don't know where you're going to use this, but this is going to help you somewhere, I promise. Professional wrestling used to be separated into regional territories throughout the United States. And I was listening to a story as it was being told about a professional wrestling promoter who owned a territory for a group of years in the southern states. So like Louisiana, it was like just a portion of the southern states. So Louisiana and some of the, you know, parts of states that surrounded Louisiana. 
And they would contract, or not even really contract, they would just treat uh, the different wrestlers that worked for their organization as people that were like independent contractors that could be hired and fired at the will of the promoter. And there was one particular wrestler in that territory that this promoter was having a lot of trouble with. And so he decided one day, he said, you know what, this guy needs to go. So he fired him. And the guy thought, I don't really feel like being fired. I feel like continuing to work here. I want to stay here. I want to live here. I don't want to have to try and find work in another territory. I want to stay. And I'm kind of ticked that this uh, promoter fired me. And so this is what he did. Every day, really every evening it was, he would take his car and he would perch his car on a hill that overlooked this promoter's house. And he would just sit there looking down at the house. They could see him. And he'd just be in the car, smoking cigarettes, looking down at the house, and just trying to be an intimidating presence from that hill. And he would do this night after night after night. And then one night, he took a gun and he shot up the house. And, you know, the family was inside. It was really bad. The, the promoter came out and handled it and uh, even let the man live, amazingly. Uh, but I look at that and I say, okay, contemporary example of how someone might, an extreme example of how someone might respond to being removed from their source of income or from their job. You can see how someone that's, they wouldn't automatically be taking very kindly to that thought. So that's a contemporary example and you see how lives were threatened. And so when Samuel thought about this idea of uh, doing what the Lord had called him to do, you have Samuel saying, all right, I think that if word gets out that I'm doing this, Saul will try to kill me. He's the kind of guy who will actually try to kill me. And so Samuel responds to God's direction to anoint a new king with an admission that he's thinking about this, right? Samuel knew that if Saul caught wind of this, he'd be dead. And so the Lord, and this is one of the things that amazes me about the Lord, the Lord was going to divinely protect Samuel. You know that and I know that, but in the moment, sometimes you feel weak when you're the vessel that the Lord's using. And I'm always amazed at how sometimes the Lord just honors our requests and honors our preferences, even though I don't know that it was 100% necessary that he honor this. But he says, all right, this is what we're going to do. He gives Samuel some additional instructions that would provide cover for him if that cover was needed. God said to him, in, in, if you look at... Uh, 1 Samuel 16, the second part of verse 2, down to verse 3, he told Samuel, he says, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So that's what Samuel did. So the Lord said, all right, we're going we're gonna to have you go there. We're going to have you make a sacrifice. If anyone asks what you're doing, you're making a sacrifice. So at the Lord's direction, you have Samuel traveling to Bethlehem to meet with Jesse's family. And if you remember uh, in the fall when we were looking at the book of Ruth, if you remember from the genealogy that's listed right at the end of the book of Ruth. So here you have Samuel going to the home of Jesse and at the end of that, the book of Ruth, there's a genealogy that shows us that Jesse was the grandson of Boaz and Ruth. So isn't it cool how things just tie together in Scripture? This Jesse that Samuel's going to, he was the grandson of Boaz and Ruth. Those were, that was his nan and papa, right? And Jesse had many sons. 
And Samuel invited them to, to join him for the sacrifice that he was about to make. And as each son, the Scripture tells us what happens next. As each son passes by Samuel, he attempted to determine whom the Lord had selected to be the new king in Saul's place. And by the way, um, Saul, when you think of Saul, Saul was visually striking, a head taller than others. And so as the sons of Jesse start coming before Samuel, I think Samuel without even overthinking it, is looking at these men. And in some ways, I mean, he doesn't know them, so he's making a personal judgment based on how they look, especially as he looks at the oldest son and he's like, oh, this, this, this guy's huge. Like, this guy's got a really striking look. This is, I bet you this is the king. I see the king. This is the new king. I bet you this is the king. And again, it would have been easy to select a new king based on outward appearance, but the Lord made it clear to Samuel that visual traits were not going to be a deciding factor in who got selected. That's not how this was going to go down. In fact, when you look at verse 7, the Lord makes it very clear after Samuel thinks, all right, the oldest son, he's, he's the guy, right? The Lord says in verse 7 of 1 Samuel 16, he says, no, don't, he says, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, think about this in a personal way too, please. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And we're going to come back to that thought in a moment. But eventually, once all the obvious choices were exhausted... You know, Samuel's looking at each of these sons. They're all being brought before him. Samuel asked Jesse, I, this had to be confusing because he's thinking he's seeing all the sons. And I guess he's looking at him, he's thinking, like, the Lord told me one of your sons was going to be the king. Like, we went through the lineup here. Do you have, like, a hidden son somewhere? Like, do you have any more sons? And uh, Jesse mentions, well, yeah, my, my youngest son isn't here because he's tending the sheep. These are all the older ones. And, and let me just pause there for a second. How many of you have grown up thinking that David was like a little boy? You know, like, I'm David, I, you know, like work with paper airplanes, and I'm like got a propeller on my head, and I'm doing all sorts of... Like, do you ever think, do you ever see David portrayed that way? Like, he's just like a little boy that's like, you know, out goofing around in the field. Sometimes I see that, like, he was the youngest son, but he's not like this little kid. Keep in mind what his task was. What's he doing out in the field? Well, put it this way. How many of you would allow your five-year-old to tend to flock a sheep? Be like, you know, come in, just let me know, make sure everyone get, make sure they all get fed. I don't want any wolves near them. No wolves. If you see a wolf, you see a bear, you see a lion, anything, that's on you. And I'm taking it out of your salary if, if one of them gets eaten. You got it? Five-year-old, Right? I always get a kick out of it, like when I even see the portrayals of, and we'll, we'll you know, get to these in the scripture where, um, you know, David fights Goliath and he wears Saul's armor, and you see these portrayals like, like Saul would put armor on David that's like 17 times too big, and it's like David's put on this large trash can, it's like, I can't wear this into battle. Like Saul was that dumb to take giant armor and put it on a, like a baby boy, Right? And the day would be like, what am I supposed to do? My arms are like this from it. That's not how it happened. He was a young guy, but he wasn't like a little boy. So like this idea that you'd be like a little boy is not really what the story is portraying. And so Jesse mentions that his youngest son was out 
taking care of a task. He wasn't present here. And, um, and Samuel says something to Jesse when you look at verse 11. The scripture says this, and Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. This is the manner in which David was selected as king. Now, we're going to be spending a lot of time looking at some of the interesting things the Lord does in David's life in the coming weeks, but this is the manner in which he was selected as king. He was a young man at the time. Again, not a little boy like some people imply, but from that moment on, Scripture tells us David was indwelled with the Holy Spirit who gave him guidance and direction and comfort and counsel, and spoke scriptures through him. David was somebody that the Lord used to write a large portion of the Old Testament. Primarily, you know, when you look through the Psalms, you see so many of these things written by David as the Spirit of God carried him along and gave him the words to write down. The Spirit of God gave David power as well. He empowered him to live and to serve in a manner that honored the Lord. And as we'll see as we continue studying the work that the Lord accomplished in David's life, David had a heart for what the Lord desired. In fact, that's the thing that impresses me most about David. And I'm not saying that David is a hero. David is actually somebody that is very much like you or me. I don't think we're supposed to idolize any of these individuals, but I do think they provide some examples. And one of the big examples that I, I get from David is just what, is, what does it look like to have a heart that's sensitive to what matters to the Lord? David was someone who had a heart for what the Lord desired, and he remained sensitive to that desire, remained sensitive to the Lord's leading for the remainder of his life. That's a pattern that he, he demonstrates all throughout his life. He has his low moments, but truthfully, he was someone who knew the Lord and loved the Lord. And it's interesting to consider some of the spiritual implications and, and some of the applications that I think we could take from the events that are recorded in this very portion of God's Word. I think there are several things that stand out to me, and I think they're worth highlighting, so I want to sh share them with us. And the first thing that stands out to me is the way that the Lord pays careful attention to what takes place in our hearts. I think it can be easy to mistakenly believe that we can impress God like we try to impress one another. I think we try to look, I think we try and look good in front of one another, and I think sometimes we do that maybe to try and gain one another's favor, but that's not the way our relationship with God operates. God is greatly concerned with what's going on in our hearts and what's motivating the actions that we're taking. When we come to faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, Scripture tells us we're given a brand new heart. Our perspective changes. And when our perspective changes, what ends up happening is we have that new heart and the eyes of Christ as well and the mind of Christ. Our motivations change as well. The things that motivate us change. We see things differently and we live differently as a result. Now, I also think it's interesting to hear that the Lord says in this passage that our outward appearance is of no consequence to Him when He selects those he's going to raise up to a place of leadership. I think that's very interesting, too. That statement reminds me of something that I don't know if you've ever thought of it before, but I want to highlight it for us because I actually think it's very, very interesting in regard to God's plan of salvation. 
The fact that the Lord does not look at the outer appearance like we look at, it reminds me of the prophecy given in the book of Isaiah. When you look at Isaiah chapter 53, a prophecy regarding Jesus. And in that prophecy, Isaiah said this, as the Holy Spirit carried him along and gave him these words, he's speaking of Jesus and he told us what to expect when the Messiah comes. And visually, he gives us an indicator. He says, he had no, no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. That's how Isaiah, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, prophesied that the Messiah would come to this earth. That is his prophecy regarding Jesus. Now, knowing that people, knowing that human beings, we tend to be drawn to others based on external appearances, what did Jesus do? He intentionally came to this earth and took on an appearance that would not stand out as particularly attractive. Whenever you see paintings or drawings or things like that portraying Jesus and, and he looks uh, you know, like he could be like a GQ model or something like that, you can be sure that the person who painted that did not see him in person, right? Because Isaiah says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Christ's desire was that people would trust him because they understood who he is, not what he looked like. That they understood that he is God the Son, that they understood that he is the Savior of the world. Not that they would trust him because of superficial reasons like the way he looked or his appearance in any way. And I also think this maybe would even help us clarify the question, why am I drawn to Jesus? Like, ask that within yourself right now. Why are you drawn to Jesus? Is it for superficial reasons that are only kind of skin deep? Or do we understand who he really is and why we actually need him? Again, Isaiah said he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So are we in, an, in a similar way honoring that and recognizing who Jesus is and trusting in him for who he is and, and why he wants us to trust in him? Or are there sometimes superficial reasons and things like that that we hope to get from him? I think one other important application that stands out to me from 1 Samuel 16 is the reference to the fact that the Spirit of God, and, and maybe you noticed this when I read it earlier, we're told here that the Spirit of God rushed or came upon David from that day forward, from the day, at, you know, that day forward after Samuel had anointed him. Now, one of the, the benefits that you and I as believers who live under the new covenant, one of the benefits that we have is the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And it can be easy to take his presence for granted sometimes, unfortunately. But from the moment you trusted in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwelled you and empowered you. He gifts you for service. He gives you guidance. He gives you direction. He does amazing things in and through you. But believers living under the old covenant, which David lived under, they didn't enjoy this same benefit the way you and I do. During that era, the Spirit of God would indwell certain people for set periods of time to enable them to accomplish something specific, and then he would move on, and he would indwell somebody else to accomplish something else. And so here the Scripture is very clear that the Spirit of God rushed upon David, or came upon him, and that was very unique during that era. 
But I hope you and I know that living in the era that we live in under the new covenant, one of the blessings and benefits that we have as those who live under the new covenant is Scripture tells us that we, were, that we are indwelled by the Spirit of God. We are baptized by the Spirit of God. We are sealed by the Spirit of God. We are gifted by the Spirit of God. That's a huge blessing. That's a wonderful thing. If you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit who indwells you will never leave you. Right now. In just a minute, we're going to finish up, but I want you to hear me before I finish. Right now, the Holy Spirit is at work to empower you to do things you don't have the natural strength to do. That's what He's doing. He's giving you wisdom that you have not lived long enough to accumulate naturally. How about that as a blessing? He's producing character and holiness in your life that you could not produce naturally. Through faith in Jesus Christ and with the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, Scripture makes it very clear that your life can be used in amazing ways, not in your strength, but in His strength. And it doesn't matter what you look like, and it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter whether you're an oldest child or a youngest child, or one of those confusing middle children that just seem to make peace and make life better somehow, and we're like, why is life so good? There's a middle child in the room, right? Whatever. I'm an oldest child, so I'm biased, but middle children seem all right. Lord, Lord gave us one. He's okay, right? But it doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter where you were born, like what your birth order is, anything like that. It doesn't matter what experiences you've had up to this point. If the Lord calls you, He will qualify you. If He directs you, He will empower you. The Lord will shape the new heart He's given you. And while the world might keep getting stuck on superficial metrics, the Lord will keep looking at the brand new heart that He's placed within you the moment you trusted in His Son, Jesus Christ. Your faith is genuine. God the Father will see God the Son and God the Holy Spirit living within you. And when that's the case, hold on, because it won't surprise me in the least to see Him do a work in your life that very likely will stand out to us all and will result in God receiving much-deserved glory and praise. The Lord looked at David's heart, and he saw genuine faith, and he empowered him by the Holy Spirit to do amazing things for the rest of his days. When the Lord looks at your heart, what does he see? Right now, as the Lord looks at your heart, what does he see? Does he see genuine faith? And if so, what do you expect him to do through you for the rest of your days? The coming weeks, we're going to see how this plays out. And it's very encouraging. I think it's very motivating as well. But I think it's also meant to be a very introspective in the sense that we're supposed to do some self-examination as we wrestle with it. Because we're going to see high moments, but we're also going to see some low moments. But ultimately, in the end, one of the things that's amazing is that the Lord will do amazing things through a life that's submitted over to Him. And I pray that our lives would be those lives that are submitted over to Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for the privilege that 
you give us to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this, even as we're setting up our time looking at the things that you did through David's life and the things that were going on around him and the spiritual implications of what took place even in this portion of Scripture. Lord, it's amazing to think about some of the ways that you operate in the lives of those who trust in you and those who will just simply submit themselves over to you. Lord, you don't care what we look like. You don't care about the the height of our earthly bodies, the width of our earthly bodies, the age of our earthly bodies. You look at our hearts And for those of us who know your son, Jesus Christ, you look at these new hearts that you've blessed us with, and you steer those hearts. You even tell us elsewhere in Scripture that you do this for the kings of the world. You can steer the heart of a king wherever you want it to go. And if that's the case, even even with those that, that at times are demonstrating that they're really trying to just go their own way, and yet you could steer their hearts, Lord, I, I recognize and we recognize that you could steer our hearts And we want to make it particularly easy to do so. We want to submit our hearts over to you and and submit our ambitions and submit our intentions and all these things over to you so that you can do wonderful things in and through us. Lord, I recognize that there are probably plenty of us in this room who minimize what we think you can do in our lives. We think maybe we don't have the right credentials and we don't have the right experiences or maybe we come from a place that we think, oh, it's just too, too humble of a beginning. Or we think, oh, I don't know, doors haven't really opened up for me up to this point, so I'm, I'm not really sure if this is you know, what the Lord could do in and through me at this point. Or some people in the room maybe are thinking, oh, I'm too young. Probably have to wait till I'm older. And some of us are probably thinking, oh, I'm too old. Probably needs to be somebody younger. It seems like we always have a convenient reason why you just couldn't use us. And then we come to a portion of Scripture like this that tells us that it's not really about the things that we think it's about. It's not about all the metrics that we artificially hold against ourselves. It's not about our age. It's not about our background. You look at our hearts. You shape our hearts. You give us a new heart. You empower us with your spirit. And you do things in and through us that are not naturally sourced. And you can do that through each and every one of us gathered together in this room. So, Father, I pray that we would submit our hearts completely over to you, that we would know you through your Son, Jesus Christ. That we would welcome the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit to guide us and strengthen us for the tasks that you've called us to accomplish And in the midst of these things, that we wouldn't be like the type of people that build monuments to themselves like Saul got in the habit of doing, but that our intent, as we serve you with the power that you lend to us, would be to give you glory and to honor you through worshiping your son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you for these blessings, and we thank you for these reminders from your word And we thank you for the privilege that it is to just be able to start off our week together thinking about these things. Lord, we pray that some of these lessons would be things that would remain with us far beyond the moment of, of first hearing them, and that we would watch and just trace your hand at work in us and around us. And we thank you, Lord, for all of these blessings and for these encouraging reminders from your word today. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.